This is a four-week series which examines doubt in the Christian life. And, uh, you know, faced well, uh, the experience of, of certain biblical characters reveal doubt to push believers towards a deeper faith, not away from it, really. Uh, and it reveals that God really wants to walk with us through these, these moments when we, when we have our doubt. So turn with me, if you can, to page 664 in your pew Bibles. Uh, today we're going to look at Matthew chapter 11, verses 2 through 6. Very short uh, passage for our direction. Page 664. And uh, this short passage finds us with uh, John the Baptist already in prison. And if you remember that guy, he was kind of weird, wore, wore strange clothes and walked around in the desert. But it says, uh, when John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. And that can also be translated who is, as, who is not offended by me, right? You know, and like John the Baptist, you know, we Christians go through seasons of doubt. But they can be believe it or not, opportunities to pursue and to press further into Christ and not, a, not be driven away from Christ. And there are many times in life, I think, that we, we doubt. We doubt uh, our government sometimes. We doubt family and friends and thought and ideology. Many of us doubt the news. Whatever news you watch, you might doubt it. Um, we even doubt ourselves. But one of the biggest struggles for a Christian is to doubt God. The whole great accounting of history as his story, right, is difficult sometimes to grasp and really believe wholeheartedly. Christians uh, sometimes don't know what to do with that kind of a spiritual dissonance or the great intellectual questions that kind of plague us at times that feel so important in certain moments of our, our journey of faith and we come up with questions like, is doubt the same as unbelief, right? Will God stop listening to my prayers if I seem doubtful? Can I take questions and doubts to God, and will he answer them? You know, I don't know if you've seen the movie, but the movie The Apostle, a movie directed and starred in by Robert Duvall, one of the, I love that guy, just such a great actor. But he portrays Sonny, this Pentecostal preacher who's in the beginning loses his wife and kids and then is booted out of his church. <laughs> and he's sort of an endearing yet very annoying person at the same time. He's very open about his faults. Uh, I like that about him. He, and you can't help but to love him, but also want to slap him simultaneously. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie, and spoiler alert, I'm pretty much giving it away. But I'll tell you right now, it's still worth the watch. Um, although not terribly concerned about theological integrity, he is very much concerned about Jesus being preached in this movie. He is both reckless but also laudable at the same time. Uh, he is a character of juxtaposing forces. He's always living in this constant tension of faith and life. And uh, I think in that we can relate to his character very well. 
Uh, and in this passionate scene of desperation, Duval's character starts to yell at God in his bedroom. And he's there and he's sort of struggling to understand what he should do or, you know, the doubts that he's having about God speaking into his life. So take a look at this clip. Not a great scene. I love the the thunder in the background, you know. But anyway, Sonny's sitting there expressing his doubts before the Lord, you know, you know, for his circumstances, what he's going through. It's all difficult, you know. And and here's where people go down the rabbit hole, right? They wanna they want to uh, get the answer to the unanswerable question. Did God bring Sonny to this? Did Sonny bring Sonny to this? Did Satan bring Sonny to this? Or is it a combination of whatever? You know, what brought him to this low? And it's really not the point, is it? The point is, are you listening in the moment? Are you listening in the moment? Is obedience truly better than sacrifice in facing doubt and difficulty in life? Trusting God always has your best in mind, even though it may not feel good in the moment. And maybe you have screwed up. He screwed up. Maybe you have screwed up. Maybe, you know, but, but you have to remember that God doesn't throw away half-baked projects, does he? He hasn't thrown me out yet. Instead, he works them into completion over a great deal of time. He is very patient with us. You know, later, Sonny decides he's not, never going to get mad at God again. 
that he'll accept whatever comes his way. Uh, he'll regard it as any situation as God's will, you know, despite how he got there, despite what he's going through and all that stuff. And that is a decision that ser- serves him well over time. And it does actually bring him peace. And he's forced to go into hiding due to accidentally killing his wife's lover in a moment of passion. And he ends up under a pseudonym in Louisiana where he actually plants another church. And uh, he's seeing people come to Christ and he's ministering to people and he seems to really love them and he seems to really love Jesus and it's all going so well and the church is growing but the cops show up one night and they're going to arrest him. And this is his last sermon that night at this church that he's built. And as the cops stand at the door, Sonny ends with an altar call, and this young guy comes forward and gives his life to Christ, and it's all so wonderful. And as Sonny prays for him, he laughs and he says, well, I'm going to jail and you're going to heaven. And it was just such a sweet moment, right? And he then gives up willingly, and he spends the rest of his days ministering on a road crew, sharing Christ and preaching to other prisoners on this road crew. Now, in watching that movie, you wonder, do I have as much faith as Sonny did? With all of his faults, he seems sometimes to do more than I do for Jesus, right? Yet, in all of his faults, he may have done more damage than my simple indifference can do, or maybe my indifference does a lot more damage than I would like to admit. See, he's easy to blame in his brokenness. We like to point the finger at our leaders, right? But he's harder to reconcile in both his, or his honesty, his faith, and even his, his effectiveness. Because we've all been sinners and saints in, in the same moment, haven't we? On the same day, we are sinners and saints. Brokenness doesn't negate genuineness. His life circumstances might be worse off being in prison now, but at least his faith has grown as he's worked through his doubt and he's still being used by the Lord. And we see in our passage today that John the Baptist had moments of doubt sitting in prison, right? John, who had baptized Jesus before this, who had proclaimed the way of Jesus, who had told the crowds, behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is the same guy in John 121 who said, or 129 who said that. And then in verse 31, he turns around and he says, I myself did not know him. Why did he say that? These statements are made surrounding the time of his baptizing Jesus. Why would he say that? He should be convinced. You remember, John had left in utero, right? In the news of Jesus. He left in his own mother's womb. But possibly Elizabeth, I don't know, his mother didn't reveal this to him in his childhood, his adolescence, his early early adulthood. I don't know. When did John the Baptist really know that Jesus was the Messiah? When did he know that Jesus was God incarnate standing here on earth? We don't know, really, when that true moment was. But John Bloom says, John had known even before he knew. Isn't that true of all of us? 
John had known even before he knew. See, John was family. His aunt and uncle, the earthly parents of Jesus, they would have attested to who Christ was. They, his own mother and father would have as well. He should not be in doubt. He is inner circle. But John was arrested. He was stuck in jail by Herod, uh, Herod Antipas. And that's not a comfortable place to be. And that is a place where the health and wealth gospel folk and the theologically shallow cannot reconcile. They can't reconcile those moments. Those moments don't work in their theologies. So John sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? John, the Bab- John, John, John Bloom uh, describes John's doubtful struggle this way. He says, but stuck alone in that putrid cell, he was assaulted by horrible accusing thoughts. What if he had been wrong? There had been many false prophets in Israel. What made him so sure that he wasn't one? What if he had led thousands astray? The thought of being executed for the sake of righteousness and justice John the Baptist could bear, right? But he couldn't bear the thought that he might have been wrong about Jesus. His one task was to prepare the way of the Lord. If he had gotten that wrong, his ministry, his life, all of it was all in vain. So let me ask you, when does doubt seep into your heart? Certainly not when things go well for the spiritual navel gazer or the miracle seeker, right? Good times for, uh, for those kinds of people only seem to validate false gods that are sort of propped up by paper theologies. Theologies summed up in the famous haiku, False Gospel, which says, Christ's love inside me, suffering and pain no more, insipid false joy. Christ's love inside me, Suffering and pain no more, insipid false joy. Notice how the writer props up the falsehood in the first two stanzas and then brings it down, destroys it in the third. Brilliant writer, his name is Hassan Guiné. <laughs> My first haiku. <laughs> uh, anyway, but. Um, But Jesus answers John the Baptist doubts, right, by saying this. He says, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the good news is proclaimed to the poor, blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me, who is not offended by me, by who I am, what I am. So Jesus didn't tell John that he was bad for having doubts at all. He didn't say that. He didn't say, well, that's it. You're out of the family. You're out of the inner circle. No, Jesus just answered him and told him truth. He encouraged him. And the truth of the matter is that accepting this stuff, Christ as Savior of the world, the resurrection, the miracles, all this stuff that we hear and see, talking donkeys in Scripture, for goodness sakes, it's all heavy stuff. And you and I would not be thinking Christians if we didn't have some doubt. That is only natural, and it's actually good. 
Author Wade Bearden writes, I believe there are at least three kinds of doubt. Intellectual doubt, emotional doubt, and moral doubt. Intellectual doubt is when our, our minds are unsure whether the teachings of Christianity are true, right? Emotional doubt is doubt most associated with pain. It's when we don't feel like Christianity is true. And then moral doubt usually happens when we are tempted to disbelieve Christianity because we don't want Christianity to be true. I agree. Seems like our buddy John is having some emotional doubt sitting in that prison. All the good stuff that Jesus says is happening out there doesn't seem to be happening to him in here, right? But such is the life of the living sacrifice. Sometimes it rains goodness. Sometimes it does rain suffering. And our theology has to embrace both. Maybe our doubts are intellectual, right? And, and we question God's creation as it relates to science. That's the big word these days, science. But let's be honest. Christianity as being anti-science is really a false accusation leveled at it with little to no merit whatsoever. And that's the God's honest truth. Science is simply a process by which we explore our world. And I do not know one Christian in my life that would argue against that. None of us would. We're not idiots. Science and faith are compatible when things are kept in proper perspectives. Science only becomes a problem when it, it is elevated to the place where it gives all the answers, which we know it cannot. We know that. A problem when, science, when something's labeled scientific as if it's absolute truth to the nth degree, right? And we, when we already know that it is either politically driven, it is opinion, it is a theory, or, or that all conclusions that people come to have to be held with humility because we've seen the dismantling of scientific theories passed all over and over again or that there are competing views by other prominent scientists. Nobody can seem to agree. God and nature are not incompatible. God created nature. And the secular humanists shouldn't be so cocky. They don't have all their you-know-what together anyway, and we know that. As Francis Schaeffer said, nature eats up grace when it is unhinged from the divine. They have to go together. God is the creator of the physical world. There are many prominent Christian scientists out there. Alastair McGrath, I love the guy, professor of science and religion at Oxford University. He can outline for you a very rational case for Christ through textual integrity of the scriptures very easily. Many of the pioneers of modern scientists were believers. Descartes, Newton, Kepler, Galileo, Locke, Copernicus, Faraday, Kelvin, Pasteur, even Francis Collins, director of the Human Genome Project, one of the most prominent scientists of our time, found Christ in adulthood, and he sees no inconsistency with his faith and his profession. So don't believe the hype. Maybe you struggle with emotional doubt. 
You know, our suffering causes us to wonder if God is really there and does he really care about us? Maybe we haven't wrestled with God like Sonny did in his bedroom, learning through experience that maybe God does have a better plan, even though it's painful for me at the time because it's really not about me. It's about Christ's glory in me. Maybe like John, sitting in a prison under the death penalty or death sentence, We've not fully come to the point of actually wanting to be the literal living sacrifice for Jesus. When it becomes real, that's hard. Or maybe we're doing something wrong in life. Or maybe we're thinking something wrong in life. And we don't want God to be right. Right? We just don't want it. Society has taken such a drastic left turn away from Christian morality that we're finally feeling the pain of exposure, aren't we? You got to stand your ground now. Again, we just don't want to be the living sacrifice on the altar of morality before our culture. All of these doubts are things that Christians have wrestled with for centuries, right? And we can find evidence and we can try to make answers for people. But at the end of the day, doubt only takes us on a journey more deeply into Jesus if we allow it. Sherry Bell says, God knows that we will have questions and doubts because we can't see the big picture like he does. That's why he repeatedly tells us in his word to trust and to chill. (laughs) In other words, do not fear, right? But God also tells us to pursue the development of our faith. Doubt's a great motivator to fuel this pursuit. And so sometimes the only advice is stand still and consider the wondrous works of God. Job 37, 14, great verse. John the Baptist and Sonny the Preacher both kept asking from the position of a believer Never once did they, you know, slide over to the position of skeptic. There's a difference. Doubt then wasn't the end of their faith because of that. It was only a deepening. Sherry also writes, when Jesus had sent John's disciples away, he said something stunning about John. He said, no one born of women had ever been greater And that said, right after John was questioning who Jesus was. In this age, even the the greatest, the strongest of saints experience deep darkness. We will. We always do. None of us are, are spared sorrow or satanic oppression in our lives. Most of us suffer sort of agonizing affliction at some point along our journey in life. Most of us will experience seasons of feeling like we've just been totally abandoned. And most of us will die hard deaths. We will. But the Savior doesn't break the bruised reed, does he? He hears our pleas for help, and he is patient with our doubt. Very much so. He doesn't condemn. He's, compl- he's paid completely for any sin that is revealed in our pain. 
He doesn't always answer with the speed with which we desire, or nor is his answer always the deliverance with which we hope for. But we will always, he will always send help that is needed in the moment. His grace will always be sufficient for those who trust him, even if it doesn't feel so in the moment. The hope we taste in the promises we trust will often be the sweetest thing that we experience in this age. And, the, and the, his reward will be beyond our imagination if we will keep going forward. In John's darkness and pain, Jesus sent a promise to sustain John's faith. He will do the same for you and I. I truly know that. Paul Tillich says, doubt isn't the opposite of faith. It's an element of faith. Timothy Keller said, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. Bell adds, people who blithely go through life too busy or indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe what they believe will, will, uh, uh, will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of a smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse overnight if they've failed over the years to listen to their own doubts, which should be only discarded after a long sort of reflection on them. And believers should acknowledge and wrestle with doubts, not only uh, their own, but their neighbors and their friends and family members. John Ortberg Jr. asserts that the more destructive form of skepticism is a disease not so much of the intellect, but of the will. It is not the doubting Thomas that leads to, search, to the search for truth. It's the doubting of Pilate who asks what is truth, which is actually a less of a question about truth than an affirmation that truth cannot be found. An excuse to wash my hands of the whole thing and simply pursue my own agenda. So here's the question. If even philosophers out there think that they can know anything with any complete certainty, right, and be perfectly fine with holding their views on life and the world and everything else, why do we Christians sweat buckets when a, a skeptic demands that we prove 100% that God exists? If they're going to make that assertion to us, they first should prove the same, by the same measure that he doesn't exist. The ball's in their court. I did that to my professor once. He didn't appreciate it too much. Writer Lenny Esposito in his powerful article in comereason.org says, it seems that many people who object to Christianity want the Christians to do all the work and provide an answer for every nuance of their belief system, but don't feel that they are obligated to do the same. And what bothers me is many Christians accept that premise, and they do a lot of work when the person objecting really wasn't interested in truth to begin with. Now, some people are sincerely seeking answers, and we should be able to give them good reasons for believing what we believe, that's for sure. But if, if the skeptic feels it's important for you to have reasons for your faith, then they should be equally accountable. Amen to that. Amen to that.
Sorry. This next part's going to be hard. To end today, I want to share a poem. I got through this at home very easily. Uh, I want to share a poem written by a man who is largely quiet in life, but found to be very verbose in death. My own father, as you know, passed away last week. We found him to be kind of prolific in writing. So I want to give voice to his words uh, this morning, Beyond the Grave. He wrote a poem in 2007, and I've searched the internet to make sure that he didn't plagiarize it. (laughs) And I can't find one anywhere. And it's called The Man on the Tree. And I hope that it encourages your, your faith and brings you, as it did me, both into the comforting, but the very uncomfortable stare of Christ from the cross. It says this. There, up there, do you see the man on the tree, one of three. I've watched and wondered what is to be. It is also very strange to me. With a kiss, one betrayed him. And then they tried him. They mocked him. They beat him. They bled him. And then one of his denied him. Through the streets, through the crowds, to Golgotha they drove him made him carry the tree. So here to this rock they brought him, and then here on this rock they crucified him with nails, don't you see? They pinned him to the tree and then stood him high for all to see. Who is he, this man on the tree? It troubles me. There is something here I can't quite see. But as he looks down at me, his eyes they see so very deep inside of me, I feel. And then another who is there asks of him, please remember me. And he responds, today you will be in paradise with me. And then in the pain, in the hurt, is that hope I see? Again, I look up and his eyes are set on me on me so deep and then in my heart I see he bleeds for me for me for me and he cries out it is finished and then I see the horror of it all and yet the hope of it all thank you dad let me just say Jesus is alive This is his story. This is real, and doubts will come. So do yourself a favor. Work through them as believer and not as skeptic. Use these seasons to pursue and press further into Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you. We thank you for all the souls gone past all the souls who've been churned up in history, all those that have stood for your glory, who have walked through their doubt and come out on the other side even more assured of who you are. We pray for their courage to be in us. We stand on their shoulders, people like John the Baptist in a prison waiting to die,
yourself who went to the cross for us above all else. My father who left us that poem. We give you glory above and beyond anything else in this world. Please take us farther, take us deeper. It's in your son's sweet name we pray, amen.